You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Did you ever get one of those assignments in, in school where it's like, throughout the week, comment on two people's posts, or write an original post and comment on two people's posts? Oh, you you must be familiar with online courses. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> My grad school, we have to take online courses, and I really didn't like it because I would do mine when I'm supposed to, and then I have to wait for everyone else to do theirs. And it always upset me. It wasn't a real conversation, I feel like. And I think that's kind of what they wanted to do. Like the goal was to kind of create like an online, like a, a discussion board. Right. But really, it just always seemed that everyone waited for the last minute. Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I've, I've been thinking about that a lot lately because as more programs go online, they often just are like, okay, your class is online and we don't do any retraining or like workshops or sp- provide space for people to rethink what education looks like online, right? Which I think is really necessary because it's not the same. And message boards can be really boring if they're not like structured in ways that are interesting. I met someone who is, in my class in a live because we actually we had to go do live classes too mm-hmm. and i was so excited and she was like oh yeah we're in the same class for the entire thing but i had no idea because we never really made any real connections right yeah i was not a big fan of, of taking online courses i i prefer the face-to-face and i wish that there was kind of a different way to make more of like a real-time discussion for that type of class well i think good online instructors do that I think that they are able to bring out some of those features. It's hard. It's hard. I know. I know I try to incorporate a lot of video and also small group and occasional whole group video conferences into our online courses. Uh, You can't do them too much because actually video conferences are like draining in a way that I think face-to-face experiences aren't. But I think that they can complement the class. Sometimes I ask students to create media as opposed to always doing discussion board. But I was excited last summer. I came up with this idea of discussion board theater, and I gave them roles to play in a discussion. I and it. I had a question. And so they had there's four roles. It was pretty exciting. Everyone can now steal this idea, right? So in discussion board theater, there's four roles. What I would do is I would give a question, right? So there's a question that has a yes, no type answer. But of course, there's a spectrum of how you defend the answer. And so you had supporters who were in favor of the question, detractors who thought that, you know, their answer was no to the question, producers who actually were supposed to post a day early and help to synthesize the information. So they really provided supports for the people who were trying to take opinions. And then you had auditors who came in after the other people and had to poke holes in people's arguments. Like literally their job was just to ask questions of assumptions or things they didn't understand. So the point was for people to have different ways of thinking about the discussion. You know, because I always say it's easy to give your opinion, but to like actually understand the content, you have to really spend some time with it. So students had positive responses, but I'd love, you know, tweet me any ideas of how to improve that model. When I did something like that with with group discussion in class, and I also had a historian who just wanted to make historical connections to everything. And then there was Socrates, who just had to end every single statement with a question at the end. The <laughs> students thought it was very silly, and then they would switch them up every now and then just for kicks. Yeah. And I think, you know, one other way to try to create some kind of interactions and ways for people to share what's happening as they go through a course is social media, of course, right, in higher ed. 
And I've been using social media for years and it's interesting. It's the same as online courses, right? It can be done well or done poorly. You can throw people yeah. on social media and be like, hey, tweet with each other. And they're like, okay, we'll do it right at the deadline. Just like we do the discussion boards, right? Oh, and, that's terrible. That's right. not a real community. I know, right? And like the dream is always they'll just embrace social media like the most active tweeters. But I think there's something to be learned. And I still am trying to figure it out. I've even been researching and I don't even know if I have answers. So we should like find someone with more answers than us. Hey, Dan, if I got news for you, <laughs> we have a guest. That's exciting. And I'm guessing the guest has lots of answers. The guest should have lots of answers. We are very lucky to have Anilda Romero Hall on with us to chat with us about this very topic. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background in education? First of all, thank you for inviting me to be a guest in your podcast. I'm very honored to be here and glad to share what I know. Just a little bit about myself. I have a background in business and also combined with education. I actually started my education at Centennial College in Toronto, Canada, studying computer programming, and then transitioned to beautiful Emporia, Kansas, where I study um, international business. And when I was at the end of my bachelor's degree, I had a friend who was doing an instructional design program. And he put me in touch with the department chair of his program because I thought his projects were really interesting. And I actually found myself wanting to work on his homework. And that's how I got into instructional design and technology. So I did my master's and doctoral degree in instructional design and technology. I transitioned to Old Dominion for my doctoral degree. I do have an Emporia, Kansas question. How many times did you go to the teacher's hall? I never did. <laughs> Me neither. I lived in Kansas. Wait, there's a teacher's went. hall in Kansas? <laughs> it is. It's in Emporia, Kansas. That's where Emporia State University is, and they have a very good teacher ed program, and so they have the Hall of Fame there. I don't actually know if that's the reason why the Hall of Fame's there, but I know those two things exist. Yeah, I never visited, and that's a shame because I didn't find out about it until I had moved away. So We never go to the museums in our own towns, you know? Yeah. It's just for tourists. And unfortunately, Emporia doesn't get a lot of them. No, well, we don't <laughs> at all. <laughs> it was a very interesting experience, so I, I really enjoy living there. I actually mystery Skyped with a class in Kansas once. And we were, the two classes, did. it was a class of teacher candidates and a class of fourth graders who were in Manhattan, Kansas. And we asked the fourth graders if uh, any tourists visited. And they all like turned and looked at each other and said no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a shame because I think Kansas has some really interesting places to visit. When I lived there, I came to the United States as an international student and I didn't have a car. So I was very much relying on my friends to take me around. But I really wish, looking back at it, that I had a car so I could explore more of the state because there's really unique sites to visit in Kansas. I loved living in Wichita. I was there at Wichita State for two years and really enjoyed it. It's a very flat state, so you can see a long way. <laughs> <laughs> it's windy, too. <laughs> and Nilda, can you tell us a little bit about social media in higher education. What have, what have you learned and researched yourself about this topic? Yeah, sure. So I started pursuing research on social media because I'm a, an active user of social media. And, you know, as a member of society, I have learned significantly about the issues that it presents to our everyday lives. I also 
I'm in higher education, so I get to interact with undergraduate students and graduate students regularly. And, you know, I see how it affects their total well-being. They struggle with how they use it. You know, they, they struggle with how it affects their relationship. So I started doing research on the topic. And one of the things that I wanted to better understand was how we can use social media for more positive purposes to counteract the negative effects that it brings to our lives, which have been very well documented. And of course, as an educator, I wanted to understand if there was perhaps an opportunity to include social media within our curriculum in different types of contexts, not only in education, but in baccalaureate experiences for students in different areas in business, in the medical field, in other areas. So one of the most recent projects that I've worked on was actually doing a social media sell-by analysis. I was actually thinking about creating a course for my graduate students here at the University of Tampa. And I thought, I don't really need to reinvent the wheel. What I really need to do is to understand how others are teaching about social media and what kind of readings are they using? What kind of assignments do they give to their students? What kind of content are they sharing in their courses? So I put out a call for others to share their social media syllabi. And it was a really unique and interesting experience to learn what others are doing to teach about social media in an education context, because it was specific to individuals, faculty members who are in education programs. And one thing that I found out is that, unfortunately, faculty are not very open to sharing their syllabus. Uh, So we had to really dig deep and look at what was available online. But we also received a few submissions. That was a very eye-opening experience to see the list of topics that our students are being exposed in this courses related to social media and education. One of the most interesting findings was actually the readings and books that are used. Because we have so much literature related to social media, there was actually very little repetition as far as the readings and the books that are used. I also found out that faculty members are connecting theories from many, many years ago to the current social media use. So there's a connection there between what has been done and what we're doing right now. I know that social media, sometimes we think it's something new, but really the theoretical background comes from research that has been done in the past. I initially thought about doing this just for myself to create a course for my students, but I saw the potential of writing it as a manuscript or and for my colleagues to use it as well. It's currently under review, fingers crossed. I think it will be very beneficial for our field, for anyone interested in social media, in higher education, and potentially for faculty members who are thinking about creating courses related to social media. We sometimes have assumptions about the things that we should include, but it's really good to know what others are already doing. So this is very timely for me because I am teaching for the first time a social media doctoral course that I was able to create called Social Media Curriculum. So I'm curious if the topics in my class were represented in your study. So I just pulled up my syllabus to look at this and we started with articles related to professional learning networks. I don't know how often that came up as a way for people who are unfamiliar with social media to look at that. We had two books in the course. We used Dana Boyd's It's Complicated which involves a lot of how youth use social media. And we are right now reading Zainab Tufechi's 
Twitter and Tear Gas, which focuses on global social media issues. But the class is actually pretty emergent, and we got really interested in social media data, like our personal data that's collected by companies. And so we have actually decided in our class on Thursday, we're going to decide what we want to read on that and try to do design a research study that we're actually hoping to conduct around what you think about the ways their data is collected and how they care about it. So how similar is my course to what you found in these other courses? So I actually didn't find much topics related to the use of data, but some of the topics that were used were actually related to professional learning networks, which is a topic that you mentioned, that came up significantly. Other topics that came up significantly related to ethics. So it's not necessarily to data, but copyright and privacy issues, digital equity, and also ethical manners of using social media. So they weren't related to how the data is used, but how the different social networks are used in an ethical manner. One of the most popular topics was actually digital citizenship, which I was actually really happy to see that as being one of the main topics that were covered across the different courses. And privacy issue was also a major topic that was covered. Yeah, those are so related to that. I hadn't seen much on data either. And we actually, as a class, just stumbled upon it and became really interested and started to pursue it. And teaser our last site social media episode is going to bring on a guest to talk about personal data literacies and so preview yeah i think privacy relates to it too right it's about is our data private and so i think a lot of people are concerned about that and it's time to talk about these issues in digital citizenship and i've also think it's really interesting to expand the notion of what we mean by digital citizenship which is often framed as just protecting ourselves but citizenship implies the common good and actually taking action in the world and making a better social media space, which I think I know I'm trying to figure out. And that's a big challenge with all the social media scandals we've had of the last year, mainly just Facebook. Well, one of the topics that I thought was really missing from the list, and I think that actually we need to talk about it more because it really does relate to digital citizenship, is the use of algorithms. I was doing an interview for a different research project just last week, and my interviewee was mentioning that the content that she sees is highly influenced by the algorithms that are run through social media uh, platforms. So I was a little bit disappointed that I didn't see more on the use of algorithms in social media these days. Yeah, and if people have not read it, I just finished reading Sophia Umoja Noble's Algorithms of Oppression, where she talks about primarily not social media algorithms, but more Google algorithms and the results they return. It's a very disturbing book about the ways that racism and sexism work their way into the algorithms. And so I highly recommend that. We actually watch a video and discuss those topics she brings up in our class. Algorithms are so important and it's a mathematic topic um, that we could easily explore, I, I would think, in mathematics classrooms. And kids would actually be kind of interested in how Facebook or Google make these algorithmic decisions about what they see. I agree. So another project that I'm currently working on, and actually this may relate to what you're doing right now in teaching this course related to social media, is that I decided to run an investigation on the use of social media by undergraduate students. As I was working on different kinds of projects and literature reviews, 
I found that there was a significant number of projects that are focused on embedding social media into a class and then investigating the use of social media in that class. But I couldn't find anything related to how are undergraduate students using social media in general. And I saw a statistic by the Pew Research Center, and it talked about the main users of social media are 18 to 25 years old. And that's the main group of undergraduate students. So I ran a survey through the students at my institution, and I asked them about their social media use and participation. I asked them about their satisfaction and the satisfactions with these spaces. And I also kind of tied it in with, with education because I wanted to learn about their informal learning experiences that they have in this platform. And that was also very eye-opening because if I think about it, we are creating learning experiences for undergraduate students. But if we don't understand how these students are using social media or the platforms that they use, we are not going to be able to communicate with them correctly. What I found out through the research is that undergraduate students are using Snapchat and Instagram. And, you know, they're not necessarily using Facebook. I'm a social media user. I'm all about Facebook and Twitter, and that's not necessarily popular with undergraduate students. If there's that disconnect, we are not going to be able to reach them out adequately. So that was another really interesting project that I'm currently still working through the data analysis for that project. But some of the initial findings, I found them to be very eye-opening. I tried the gram once, the, the instant gram. It didn't really take. I didn't really know what I was doing. It's just pictures, Michael. Yeah, it's like, why? Like, what? why? Well, it seems like there, it's more than just pictures these days. It's a lot of direct messaging. It's about creating connections, but not sometimes in like an open space, but creating connections privately with individuals. It seems like Snapchat and Instagram are used as text messaging tools, really. Interesting. Absolutely. I just want emails. I just want someone to send me a nice email. <laughs> like, that's it. We've been over this, Michael. I'm trying to eliminate emails. Remember? Remember my mission? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I just finished rereading Dana Boyd's excellent book, It's Complicated. I think the main theme of her ethnographic work is to just start by asking youth and asking, in this case, undergraduate students or graduate students, what mediums they use and why. And I think that we can integrate a lot of those, not necessarily the uses, but at least the discussions into our class about how we communicate, how we understand our world, how we manage our habits, right? How we manage like habitual checking of sites instead of sleeping that contributes to, you know, us being worn out during our days. So there's all kinds of discussions I think we need to be having with youth and adults, by the way, in classes. The adults have many of the exact same problems. Maybe they're on Facebook more so than they're on Snapchat. But I think just asking each other about what we use and why and allowing for space for reflection and discussion can be a really rich experience for everyone. I agree completely. Every time I've had an opportunity to talk to undergraduate students about their use of social media, they come up to me and they say, well, thank you for letting us know that we need to leverage these social media spaces because often I hear well, the only thing my professor says is don't use social media or the only time it's mentioned is when it's in the syllabus and it says 
don't use social media in class. Instead of saying, this is a social media space and this is how you can use it to your advantage. Instead, undergraduate students and others are just said, well, don't use it. Or here's all the negative things that come with it. Perhaps you should completely avoid it. So I feel like if we work on creating positive experiences, if we work on giving options as to how it can be beneficial or how it can be positive or how it can create learning experiences, then it it would be um, a better use of our time than saying, don't use it. A few years ago when Snapchat was becoming all the rage, I wanted to kill Snapchat. My goal was to kill it. So I made it a part of the assignment. So instead of an exit ticket, students would send me a snap. They would send an exit ticket that way. My idea was to make it a school thing so that I could properly destroy it. It didn't work, and I didn't follow through with my plan much more than a week. (laughs) But the intent was there. Unfortunately, you're like too cool, and you actually amplified Snapchat and drove it into its success, Michael. (laughs) I think they probably enjoyed it. Sorry. No, I don't know. I have to go back to them. This is a while ago. Dr. Romero Hall, what advice do you have for educators, particularly those working in higher education, for how they should approach social media in their work? Yeah, I think my advice for educators is to first have two-way conversations with their learners about social media, not just conversation about this is what you have to do, but have conversations about how their use and participation in social media environments can be beneficial, again, to them in different kinds of contexts. And also, we need to think about ways in which we can be creative about social media because these spaces are not going anywhere. Yes, new social media spaces are going to come up. They're going to be created. But social networks are not going away. So we need to learn to live with them and be creative about how we integrate them into our lives. And of course, as an educator, think of ways that we can integrate them into learning spaces. And of course, if you're one of those people thinking of creating a new social media space, don't worry, Mark Zuckerberg is going to crush you. (laughs) Or buy you. Or buy you. He does buy them. So I'm not like angry against social media by any means. I did used to use stuff with Twitter. And and sometimes when I taught English, we'd have our vocabulary terms, then students would like they would define briefly and then send an image based upon like whatever the term was. And this way it was kind of this collective place where we were all sharing images and and vocabulary. So I I do utilize things. It was just Snapchat that I I wanted to kill. But I thought you found a way to make it work, I think. Yeah. Didn't we meet on Twitter, Michael? Come on. No, we did. I don't know why (laughs) I set it out to destroy Snapchat. Literally, Michael has been, for the last seven years of his life, one of the co-moderators of SS Chat on Twitter. So he loves social media. Let's just be honest. I do. I enjoy it. (laughs) I enjoy it. But I like the concept of the you want to make sure you're leveraging your space, that you don't need to totally be on it all the time, that you should really make more of a mindful effort to be around, be there. I think it's really important to understand the good, the bad, and the ugly. And once you understand all of that, then you can make a better use of it. Sometimes if we just focus on the bad and the ugly, we are limiting individuals. So I think that we really need to understand all three different ways that social media can affect us and then just be mindful about it. 
Absolutely. And that reminds me of our old episode 62 on mindful tech with David Levy, where he does a lot of those strategies in our class. There's so many cool ways that you can help kids, undergraduates, adult learners, your mother, whoever it is, really think about social media. I think we need to all be reflective about our uses, especially you, Mark Zuckerberg. And Cheryl Sandberg, too. She needs to be reflective. So thank you, Anilda Romero-Hall, for, for chatting with us today. Well, thank you again for having me. I've enjoyed our conversation, and I hope it's beneficial to others that are listening to us. And especially our site listeners. You guys are going to love this episode. And so, again, thank you so much for joining us. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yes, they can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is E. Romero Hall. All right, great. So thank you so much. We will be sure to tweet you at E. Romero Hall. And Michael will be sure to Snapchat at all of you. (laughs) We're all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun, creating education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook. But now that we realize that we probably should be in other spaces, who knows where we pop up. I think we have a Pinterest thing. I don't know why. I thought it'd be interesting to be on the Pinterest. And if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and literally anywhere you want us to be. Including Spotify. If you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing Signing off. off.